Our scripture reading for today is from 1 Peter 1, 22-23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word. Thank you, Lana. Uh, I was listening to an interview this past week uh, on the war in Ukraine, and everyone has been so surprised at the staying power of the Ukrainian army, right? That has been really remarkable. Um, I remember initially they were thinking that Ukraine would fall within days. Um, and here we are four weeks later. Uh, they are holding their own against the Russians, even though they're vastly outnumbered and outgunned. Um, it's surprising and encouraging, but still in interviews, people think that it's an inevitability. They're still talking about, man, this, they can't hold out forever, something has to give. And in this interview, a military expert was saying that one of the ways that you assess, that an expert will assess how an army's holding up is their appearance. How sharp do their uniforms look? Right? How clean are their guns? Do their generals look buttoned up? Do they still take pride in small things? And this person was commenting that the Ukrainian leaders and soldiers are still ironing their uniforms. Um, they still are showing to the world that they've got some fight left in them. They've got some hope there. And we're working through 1 Peter, which is a letter sent to Christians who were at war. Not with humanity, mind you. It's very important. The African church father, Tertullian, wrote, A Christian is enemy to no one. Uh, the church is never at war with nations or cultures or people, and many of the most tragic and unsettling periods of church history were when the church took up arms as the church against people, right? And so we have to be really careful, especially in today's environment, with how we use war language when it comes to the church's relationship with the world. So we want to be really um, mindful of that. And yet the Bible teaches that the church is fighting a war, right? A spiritual war with Satan and sin, not against humanity, but on behalf of humanity, on behalf of the earth. Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so Peter is not warning them against their neighbors, against their spouses, against their citizens, um, who are the ones who are physically or socially or economically aggressive towards them. That's not who he's warning them against. He's warning them against Satan. Uh, Peter even uses fighting language in chapter 4, verse 1, when he calls the church to arm themselves with the mind of Christ, that we're supposed to um, take up the weapon that is the mind of Christ, who loved sacrificially even to the point of death. That is our weapon. And so listening to that military strategist this week caused me to wonder, 
for the church, what is the spiritual equivalent to ironing our shirts and cleaning our weapons? Like, what are the little things that show a watching world we've still got fight left, right? We've still got hope. And I wonder if it's not our love for one another within the church, how we treat those we call family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And as I was thinking about it and reflecting on 1 Peter 1, is that not what's been so disconcerting in the American church broadly for the past four, six years, or however long, how ugly people have become towards one another? That that's what makes you really feel like it's coming apart. Not that you are suddenly doubtful of the doctrine and the content and the, um, the things taught, but the way they treat one another, the way we treat one another, is what has caused us to think that maybe the war is over imminently. It's not the particular disagreements as important as those are, it's the lack of love. And so the bulk of 1 Peter's instruction will be how to engage those outside the church. And so pretty soon, um, the end of chapter 2, we'll move where Peter will give specific counsel to how slaves engage masters and masters engage slaves, how wives engage husbands and husbands engage wives. And so they're talking about how do we posture ourselves with those who don't believe in Christ, especially those who are hostile. Um, that's the primary battlefront for the early church to whom Peter is writing. But before the apostle instructs them and in how to fight the spiritual battles they find themselves in, he emphasizes the importance of their love for one another. And this is in line with the rest of the New Testament, right? First John 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Think about that as you uh, read the barbs that are like thrown about um, in social media spaces. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Not about his brother, but about the fact that he loves God. He doesn't love God. For he who does not love his brother whom he, see, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Um, just noticing there too, how important it is that when we think of brothers and sisters, we're thinking of people in our real life whom he has seen. Like, it's pretty hard to love somebody and to, like, have a right thought towards somebody who you've never seen before, right? And so here, who, who do we love people that we see? Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Hebrews 13, 1, let brotherly love continue. And of course, Jesus, in his final word to his disciples before his death in John 13, says, A new commandment I give to you. This is the verse for Monday, Thursday, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the tell for the church. This is the buttoned-up uniform, the clean weapons, the iron shirt, the washed face. For the Christian, people know who we are by our love for one another. And so with so much space in the New Testament devoted to love within the church, we should diligently ask ourselves, do I love the people in my church? Do I love the, the Christians in my life? Do I love Christian people broadly? Because there is a command, and you see the New Testament calls churches to love churches that are far away. And so they send resources and money far away. What does that look like? And how can we do it more and more? 
I am so thankful for the love that is in this room on display every Sunday morning. There is a richness about the relationships here and affection that is present here. And so uh, in the same way that Paul encourages the Thessalonians, but then says, but do it more and more. We should ask ourselves, man, how do we lean into this? Because this is the currency. This is how we persuade people of Jesus. How do we extend that here? How do we deepen it here? And then how do we extend it to other Christians who are in the city, other Christians in the area, Christians who are far away? How do we love people diligently where that's what people know our church for is how we love other brothers and sisters in Christ? And so last week, we asked Peter the question, what does hope in God look like? And its answer was holiness. Hope in God looks like holiness. And our question for Peter this week is, what does holiness look like? And the answer is love. What does holiness look like? It looks like love. And so let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the Spirit of God that you have placed in our souls, that you have placed in this space that unites us to where there is affection here that is deeper than the amount of time that we've known each other and the amount of experiences that we've had together. We can't explain the level of affection here, the level of kindness and grace extended here. And so we're thankful. We know that that is a supernatural work. That is heaven on earth. It is new creation life in us. And we pray for it to grow. Uh, Father, help us to be people who love one another, who no matter what is happening, no matter how hard and difficult life might be, um, our environment, our circumstances, no matter the disagreements that we have here, um, legitimate, hard, difficult, challenging disagreements, would we still faithfully show love one another, sincerely love one another from a pure heart. We pray that you would open our eyes, um, help us to be encouraged by your word this morning, help us to be challenged, bring conviction to all of us uh, this morning about specific people, relationships, situations, help us to grow and to be more like Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. So last week's text, again, was about holiness. It was about our holiness and God's holiness. And if you'll remember, holiness does not speak to our perfection. It's not about being perfect. It's about being devoted. Holiness expresses singular devotion. And so when 1 Peter 1.15 charges us to be holy like God the Father is holy, so as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. It's calling us to be singularly devoted to God as he is singularly devoted. First to himself and his own glory as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then because of grace to us, like he is just singularly devoted to us and to our salvation. And that's proven in the ransom that he paid for us. Not gold, not silver, but the precious blood of his own son. He, uh, we can be holy towards God because he is holy towards us. And today's text picks up that call of holiness and then it extends it to the call to love others, particularly those within the household of God. And so as 1 Peter moves on, we'll talk about loving those who are enemies of the church. A Christian is enemy to no one, but the church has enemies, an enemy to you. We'll talk about loving people who are oppressive and abusive and, and um, hard to love. But right now, he's talking about those within the church. 
And Peter actually links the two commands so that the command to be holy and the command to love are not two separate responsibilities for the Christian, but follow one after the other. In 1, 22 and 23, Peter seems to indicate that holiness makes love possible and that love is actually the purpose of holiness. So 1 Peter 1, 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that's holiness. Having purified your souls for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And so let's slow this logic down a bit. What is Peter saying? He's saying that as Christians, through our being born again, by obeying the truth and turning to Jesus, we have purified our souls. Before they were corrupted, we were enslaved to sin and death. We were lost and confused by the futile ways of our forefathers. That's what he says earlier in the chapter. But in believing the gospel, we have decidedly left those old ways behind and turned to Christ. We are holy, pursuing holiness, singularly devoted to God. And that's what it means to have purified souls so that we have pure hearts. And now, as a result of our holiness, having hearts that have been cleared of all other devotions, we are free. We are free to live as we ought to live with sincere love for one another. It was our unholiness, our uh, spread out, mixed up, uh, backwards devotion that kept us from loving people before. But having purified our souls, we are now able, we are free to love. And so basically, you were created for love, you were recreated for love, and so why don't you go ahead and get to it? Love, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So this dynamic is the two great commandments on display. If you remember Matthew 22, a lawyer asked Jesus, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And this sounds to me a lot like Peter's holiness and brotherly love dynamic, right? Holiness is singular devotion, and that is loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And then brotherly love is loving your neighbor as yourself, loving another person as if you share the same name, the same heritage, the same blood as yourself. And so Peter here is reiterating Jesus' two great commands. And what's more, he's saying this is why you were saved. This is the goal, to love God and love others. And he already said that at the beginning of the book in verse 2. The church was chosen, elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That's sort of an, a phrase that always catches me off guard at the beginning of the book. You're sort of used, when, when you read the New Testament, you're kind of used to these opening phrases, right? About uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, about grace and peace and, and the gospel, and then to say that we are saved for obedience, that that is part of God's plan. He wants us to be obedient children for his sake, but also for our sake. Obedience to Jesus. 
which is summed up in the two great commandments to love God and love others. This is why we're saved. But sometimes I find that I'm tempted to pit these commands against each other, to see them as competing for my time and resources, the command to be holy and the command to love. And if you look closely at Jesus' language, they do appear incompatible because how can I love God exclusively with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and have any room left over for loving others? How does my love for others not pull my heart away from my devotion to God, from my holiness? And so sometimes we might feel the need to choose between holiness and love. Um, but surely that is a false dichotomy, right? Yet some of American Christianity's fiercest battles over, are over which is more important, holiness or love, truth or grace with the fundamentalist Christian supposedly siding with holiness and the progressive Christian supposedly siding with love of neighbor. Uh, in the book Reading While Black, uh, New Testament scholar Esau McCulley, he talks about the frustration having grown up in a traditional southern black church as a black man of regularly being thrust into the middle of a battle between white progressives on one side and white conservatives on the other, feeling alienated in different ways from both. And if you look at the rich history of the black church in America, if you look at their songs, if you look at their sermons, um, if you look at their communities, they've arguably been the most faithful at holding together both good theology and good ethics. Orthodoxy and social justice, holiness and love, they've whole held those together. And in so doing, they have faithfully imaged Christ, even while enduring horrific suffering. One of my favorite lines about politics is from Scott Sauls, and it's that Jesus is simultaneously the most progressive and most conservative person you'll ever meet. It's a great line. That no matter where you fall, he will challenge you. Uh, because Jesus, like the conservative, cares deeply about personal responsibility, right? Uh, he cares about holiness for himself and others. He speaks frequently more than any other biblical voice about how all people will be held accountable for their deeds and thoughts in the body at God's final judgment. He says in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That is very conservative, right? <laughs> um, and yet, he also is quicker than anyone to extend compassion and grace to those who come to him for it. He sums up his entire ministry with Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's pretty liberal, right? That's the social gospel. 
But Jesus is both. He is holy and loving. And he calls us to be the same. And this, this is because God is one. His attributes cannot be divided. Whatever holiness is must include love or it's not holiness. And whatever love is must include holiness or it's not love. Which is why the commands need to be seen as one and all-consuming love for God both enables and includes within it genuine love for others. God saved us from both. Now, this is, of course, easier said than done. Uh, it's easy to criticize a false dichotomy out there in politics and church history. But as I was thinking this week, it, it shows up in my own life, in the day-to-day, -day, where I toggle back and forth between a commitment to holiness and love. In relationships, I treat them kind of like two dials that I sort of adjust and tweak, right? And turn up, turn down, depending on what I can handle. So that my patience in parenting my kids goes only so far until at some point I turn down the love, right? And turn up the holiness, right? Drop the hammer. My love runs out and it's time for justice. But then, parenting from justice is incredibly tiring. And so I switch back to patience, which is not actually love, but just exhaustion, right? <laughs> you just do whatever you want to do. Um, <clears throat> but that dynamic is present in all relationships, right? Relationships with spouses, with roommates, families of origin, right? How do I hold both to holiness and love in my behavior, in my relationships. Similarly, at work, or with my health, or my finances, my calendar, to-do list, the tasks I'm called to do, I hold myself to a high standard on a good day, right? In an attempt at holiness, in a, in a true, genuine attempt to, to honor God with my work. But then I can feel like this standard almost requires me to ignore or objectify the people closest to me. My coworkers, my spouse, my kids, friends, and neighbors, so that it feels like people are in the way of my holiness. Right? They're in the way of my devotion to God. I can't do what God calls me to do because of all these people around me demanding love. Or on the flip side... I'm so attentive to other people's presence and needs from a desire to love that I fail to take seriously the objective work that God has called me to do. Maybe I'm genuinely convinced that love requires I have no boundaries, or maybe I'm actually just avoiding what it means to be holy in my work, and so I'm just letting other people just sort of dictate my life. Again, how do I do both? Why is it so hard to hold holiness and love together? I don't know if you struggle in the same way, but it often feels like there's not enough of me. And in truth, apart from God and the gospel, there isn't enough of me. I alone, you alone are not enough. That's why Peter consistently grounds our action in God's action. Our holiness last week and now our love for others this week is enabled and empowered by the gospel. And more specifically this week, it is grounded by our being born again. So 1 Peter 1.22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. It is our new birth in Christ which empowers our love for one another. A new birth which isn't just a second chance. It's not a reboot. To be born again is to be born differently. To be different from where you were before. With something new that wasn't there before. And Peter goes on to contrast love that is fueled by our flesh with love that's fueled by God's word, right? Verse 24, this is a, from the Psalms. It's one of the most often quoted uh, Psalms in the New Testament. And so it's something that we should take to heart. Um, the apostles want us to take this to heart. First Peter 1, 24, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And so it's not that the grass isn't alive. And it's not that the grass isn't glorious. It is. There's nothing more beautiful than a field of California poppies, right? It's glorious and good. Many people think that the Christian criticism of the world is that it's all hell. That it's all terrible. As if there's no good in the world unless a Christian does it. As if there's no love outside the church. And that's just not true. There are so many stories of love and patience and joy and forgiveness in our city. So many stories. And it's awesome. It's glorious. It's to be celebrated. Wildflowers are beautiful. No one's saying it's not beautiful. But the problem is that it doesn't last. That's the problem First Peter is pointing out, it's dying. We are dying physically and spiritually. And the hope of the gospel that Peter keeps championing over and over and over again is the hope of eternal life. We have been born again to a living hope, an undying hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And that sure promise of eternity changes everything. I grew up in the South, and a saying, I don't know if it, um, how far it extends, but it's that someone's so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. You're familiar with that? It's hogwash, which is also a uh, southern <laughs> phrase. It's ridiculous. First Peter is all about us being heavenly minded so that we can be of tremendous earthly good. Because of the resurrection, never again should I say, there's not enough of me. That I'm not enough. I'm going to live forever. That's the beautiful thing about the economy of God's kingdom. It's not an economy of scarcity. It's an economy of abundance. In Christ, we always have enough. You always have enough. You're going to live forever. And so there is enough time for you to be holy and loving. You have an inheritance kept in heaven for you that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. There is enough energy, enough resources, enough love to give. God's love is endless, like God himself is endless. It never runs out. It never dies. And when we fail to love, when I fail to love, when my love runs out, it's because I'm drawing my love from the wrong source. 
I'm drawing my love from my flesh, which is here today and gone tomorrow. It starts out great. The poppies are in bloom. It's beautiful. But when the seasons change or the storm comes or someone stomps on them, it's over, right? And that's so often the experience, my experience of an attempt at holiness, an attempt at love, is I feel good, it looks great, and then somebody stomps on it, right? When the seasons change, and the moment we start to see our glory dying, we start to see the flower shrivel, right? Our time passing away, our bank account dwindling, our bodies failing, our love <coughs> begins to shrivel. And we realize we're running out of life, and so we pull back, we scheme, we manipulate, we hedge. This is the source of this is the source of sin. The source of strife is the reality of death. But when we draw our love from our new birth in Jesus, from the abiding and eternal word of Christ, we remember to put off those behaviors. First Peter 2.1, so put away, because you were born again, from the enduring and abiding word of God, put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. What are these behaviors? They're behaviors of scarcity, right? They're behaviors of fear of manipulation, of desperation, of hoarding. They're behaviors of hopelessness. Which believe that the only way for me to preserve my life is to hoard it. But that is not the way of the resurrection. That's not the way of eternal life. That's not the kingdom of God. Where we can give and give and give because there's always more there. Again, this passage is especially aimed at love between Christians, Christians near and, and far. We are called to love them all. And that is the proof that we are born again. First Peter, or First John 3.11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life. We know that we are born again because we love the brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. Our lack of love is abiding in death. Love is the sign of God's resurrection life in us. These past two sermons have been harder, right? We've moved out of uh, in part, out of the indicative, we're just talking about only what God has done and that we have an inheritance that's protected forever and everything's going to be great, it's awesome, to commands, right? This, these are the first commands of Peter, to be holy, to be fearful, conduct all your conduct in fear, to love others. And I know I can think, uh, who has enough time for holiness? Right? Who has enough energy to earnestly love others? And I wonder how many of you ask yourself some form of that question every week. Maybe not in an existential way, but in a specific way where you feel called to the Lord to do something. You're like, I don't have time for that. And I'll be the first to say, it is time-consuming to be holy. It takes time. It is time-consuming to love others well to remember them, to go at the pace of love, which is always slow, 
It takes energy, it takes effort, it is costly, it requires singular devotion, and 1 Peter is not denying that. Being a disciple of Jesus is not a cakewalk. All Peter's saying, and all I'm saying, is while it may be costly, and it may take time, and it may be hard, and it may be painful, as a child of God, you can afford it. You've got all the time in the universe. You have an inheritance that is un... It is huge. I can't remember the three words. <laughs> um, what are the three words? It is um, un- imperishable, undefiled, unfading. You're going to live forever. You have been born again, not of perishable seed. You are of imperishable stock. And you may not have all the time in the world to do everything that the world wants you to do, but you have all the time in the world to do everything that God wants you to do. And that's really the only stuff that's worth doing. You are born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And you still have access to that word, right? First Peter 2, 2 through 3, we have to sort of re-up on the word of God to sustain ourselves. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so in order to love not from the flesh, but from the eternal word, I need to continually be drawing from that word personally, relationally, corporately. That's one of the things that is driving our convictions as a citizen's community to pursue spiritual practices. Because before we can really jump into mission, jump into the uh, task uh, that God has put before us, we need to be sure that we are a people who abide, who rest who are filled up. The longer we go without experiencing the gospel, the fainter our love for God and others will grow and we'll start drawing from the flesh and it's not gonna last very long. And so if you find your love waning, if you find your commitment to holiness waning, put yourself consistently in spaces and rhythms where the gospel is offered. And if that's you, where your love is waning, your holiness is waning. Don't be discouraged. That's not what First Peter is for. Compared to who you will be in 10,000 years, you're an infant. Uh, everyone in the room here is a baby in the cosmic grand scheme of things, right? Spiritually, we are all pooping in our pants more than we'd like to admit, okay? Um, every week it happens to you at least once. Um, and so for Peter... Because that's true, it's okay if you act like a baby sometimes. It's okay if you act like a baby most of the time. But we have been born again. And so put away old ways, the ways you learned from your forefathers, the literal ones, your cultural ones. Put those things away and put on holiness. Put on love. Dust off your uniform. Iron it. Clean yourself up because you have been ransomed from the ways of death. In Christ, you are born again, victory is assured, and you've got all the time and energy you need. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the new life that we have in Christ. 
we are thankful that it is imperishable. Help us to remember the resurrection more and more in our daily life. Help us to remember new creation more and more. Here we are just one chapter in, and and Peter has, has appealed to it three times already. Let that instruct us that we need to remember that, and we need to remind each other of it. You are born again when, when I'm feeling discouraged, when I'm feeling lost, when I'm feeling like we are losing, that I am losing. For us to remind one another, we're born again. Father, will you remind us of that? And will you help us to draw from eternal living, eternal life when we love each other? Father, I pray for this morning that it is encouraging that we leave here hopeful, remembering that we'll live forever, and so we have all the time we need. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.